Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to this episode of Read Smart, the official podcast for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. I'm the Executive Director of the Prize, Toby Mundy, and today I'm delighted to welcome Tanya Brannigan, who's been shortlisted for this year's prize for her first book, Red Memory, Living, Remembering and Forgetting China's Cultural Revolution. Red Memory is a book that explores the stories of those who had been driven to confront the Chinese Cultural Revolution, some fearing it and some yearning somehow for its return. After nearly 50 years since the era came to a close, the work examines official suppression, memory, personal trauma, and illuminates and rarely heard stories of individuals who lived through Mao's tempestuous decade of chaos and madness. Welcome, Tanya, and congratulations for being shortlisted for this year's award. Thank you very much. So as The Guardian's reporter in Beijing from 2008 to 2015, you we're covering this extraordinary country. And I think you say early on in the book that you kept discovering everywhere you look the lingering effects of the Cultural Revolution. Can you say a little more about that? Yes. I mean, I certainly had no intention when I went there of writing a book about history because it was a country that was just changing at such a breakneck pace. It was impossible to keep up with really even doing the day job. And the idea of turning back to the past seemed quite perverse in a way. But in fact, as I went along, I discovered that every time I did a story, it seemed it would be there just beneath the surface. Originally, really, it began for me with a conversation I had with an analyst, uh, an investor I knew. And we went for lunch as usual. And then over coffee, he just got to telling me about a trip that he'd made with his wife uh, to a village outside Beijing to try to find the body of her father who had been taken by Red Guards in the Cultural Revolution and then had killed himself, as many people who were hounded did. And so they'd gone back all these decades later to try to find the body. And although people there had been very sympathetic and remembered her father, they were also completely uncomprehending, really, of the idea that they should look for him because they said, well, there are so many bodies buried around here from that time, so how are we supposed to know which one of them is his? And there was something about that story that really stuck with me. It certainly wasn't the cruelest I'd heard about the Cultural Revolution, because it was a time of great horrors. But it was the fact that it was so immediate that it would come up over a cup of coffee. It was the fact that it was so commonplace that you might not bother searching for a body. And it was the fact that here was somebody not that much older than myself, who had spent their life living with this absence. Uh, she said, even now that she was a mother herself, she really couldn't imagine what it would mean to have that gap be filled. And so when I had that in my mind, I began to realise that it was everywhere, that it was something that wasn't history, that it was something that people were still living with, either because of an absence in their home, in their family, uh, because of the profound guilt that they felt because of the way perhaps it had fractured family relationships, because it was an era when family members as well as friends turned upon each other. But also, if you want to understand China's economics, the fact it was able to make this sudden turn towards the market away from Maoism was really only because of the disaster of the Cultural Revolution. The fact tycoons had such drive, quite often they would say, you know, this goes back to my time 
as a young person in the Cultural Revolution and that sense of struggling for survival and being on your own. Again, something that sort of really drove them. And certainly when you look at the politics of China today, it's very clear that the legacy lives on, both in this sense that the party has to keep a very tight grip uh, because otherwise chaos will result. But also for many years, people who came after the, uh, the leaders who returned to power after the end of the Cultural Revolution tried to put all kinds of safeguards in place to prevent another strongman from taking hold. And that included the current leader, Xi Jinping's father. He was one of those people who tried to collectivize power and so forth. But in fact, that's all really been swept away. So we feel its legacy live on in a number of ways. Hmm. That picks up lots of future questions I want to ask you. But before we get into that, I think it would be very helpful for me and possibly for some of our listeners to just give us a brief history lesson. Tell us about the Great Leap Forward and tell us about the Cultural Revolution, what it was and what its purpose was supposed to be and what it what happened. So in 1958, Mao launched the Great Leap Forward and this was his extraordinarily hubristic attempt to transform the economy and the whole of Chinese society to go through this incredible breakneck industrialization to collectivize the whole of agriculture. He said his aim was to leapfrog the UK in terms of its industrial production, but really as well, it was about claiming the standard of international communism and taking it from the Soviet Union, really. It was an absolute disaster. It led to tens of millions of people dying in a devastating famine, and it had to be reined back by more pragmatic figures within the party. That left Mao really feeling that he'd lost a great deal of his authority. And he was angered as well because he felt that his vision of this perfect communist society that everybody could achieve if only they believed enough had really been produced by the other figures at the top of the party. So he launched the Cultural Revolution to wipe out political opposition. And while purges were nothing new within the party, what was different this time was that because he couldn't really do it through the party's structures as he had in the past, because he had sort of lost that authority, he went outside and he turned to the masses and in particular to young people, very young people, often children, people in their early teens even, and they were the ones who became his shock troops in a sense, these very youthful political vigilantes known as the Red Guards who set out to destroy the old ways of life, uh, to turn upon the old culture and customs and so forth, but also to overthrow authority. And this meant pupils turning on teachers, students turning upon their lecturers. We have cases of teenage girls beating their teachers to death, for example. A, a level of brutality that's really hard to imagine. And then this convulsed society and it became really universal stretching through every part of the country and from the very top to the very bottom. So both of Mao's heirs apparent would die in this decade, but also many revered figures such as scholars, artists, some of China's greatest writers and musicians, even the table tennis champion who was a national hero at, a time for having, at the time for having brought China sporting glory. And then this also rippled out. So it went right to the most remote places. And even infants, in some cases, 
were killed because their whole families were wiped out for being related to landlords. So just family background, political crimes, thought crimes essentially, or imagined thought crimes in many cases, these were enough to damn you. I think, I mean, the scale of death was a fraction of the death that Mao's Great Famine caused, but there were still millions of people lost their lives, didn't they? Yes, we think that around two million people lost their lives, perhaps more, and tens of millions were hounded. It was an incredibly brutal time. And I think one of the most devastating things was the fact that it was such a profoundly uncertain time in which, because the political currents shifted so often, you never knew whether you were safe or not. You might be a perpetrator and then become a victim, and indeed vice versa. And also that we were talking about very intimate betrayals a lot of the time. Pupils perhaps turning on a teacher who might have helped them, colleagues in the workplace turning upon each other. And as I said, even family members. One of the people in the book that I write about is a man who denounced his mother when he was just 17 and she was executed a few weeks later because of him. And he's had to carry that guilt throughout his life. Well, I I want to ask you a bit about the, the, the use of children in this campaign. But tell us a little bit more about, because it's a very powerful and disturbing story, your encounter with this man. Tell us a little bit more about about the man who denounced his mother. He was initially, like so many young people, very zealous in his support for the Cultural Revolution, very enthusiastic and idealistic. And so he and his sister were changed their names, as many people did, to names that were considered more red or revolutionary, in his case, Red Soldier. But it also became clear very early on uh, the cost, I suppose, of the Cultural Revolution in some ways. His elder sister was a very keen Red Guard. She was one of many who travelled to Beijing to see Mao speak in one of these vast rallies. And she caught meningitis. There was an outbreak that spread very rapidly because of all this travel by young people and died really within a few months of the Cultural Revolution starting. His mother was clearly deeply upset by this. His father became a target uh, for the Red Guards and for the persecution that was going on. Uh, A few years on, his mother then became a target. His grandmother, who'd been living with them, was sent away from the family home. So it was this entire splintering and devastation, really, of the family. And after his mother was finally able to come back and live with them, she began to denounce Chairman Mao one night. And so Zhang Hongbing and his father then denounced her to the authorities for turning upon, for criticising Mao, and that led to her execution. So these were private remarks within the family home to an audience of a father, a husband and a son? Absolutely, yes. And it was still still enough to result in her denunciation and eventual death, murder, really. Yes. I mean, her son said he was so imbued, really, with the propaganda of the time, essentially, that he felt that she wasn't his mother, that anybody who was capable of talking about Chairman Mao in this way was really a sort of a demon or a monster. I think if you also look at the situation of a profoundly traumatised family that had been through so much and just the intense paranoia of the time when it took so little really to become a target and even what seemed like private remarks in one's own home 
I suppose one might fear they might be overheard. One might fear that they might be repeated to neighbours. It was a time of intense vulnerability where people were so scared that they could be turned upon next. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the most disturbing things, at least to, to, to me and maybe to other Western readers, is the use of children in this campaign as the foot soldiers of the Red Guards, who weren't military, were they? They were sort of uh, an evangelical uh, vanguard for, for Mao. How were children involved and at what ages were they involved? How did that indoctrination work within the Cultural Revolution? Many of them were very young, some even 13, 14, when they joined the Red Guards. They were naive, obviously, in many ways, as you would expect children to be. They had been brought up with a personality cult to worship Mao, and not only to regard him as a godlike figure, but really somebody who is very real to you and very present with you. So the man who denounced his mother talked about a song that they had learned at school, which said, mother and father are dear, but Chairman Mao is dearer. And so that sense of an absolute duty, really, to follow his wishes. Also, people coming from a very turbulent time, you had families who'd survived these just waves of traumas that China had seen in the 20th century. I mean, it had begun, obviously, earlier by being carved up by foreign powers, including the UK, among others. And then there had been the very brutal occupation uh, by the Japanese in the war that had been followed by the Great Famine. So these families who'd come through this turbulent and painful time and were probably in some ways quite broken, I think. And then also children who'd been raised with an ideal of revolutionary struggle, of violent struggle uh, as being a glorious thing. And who, unlike their parents, who in many cases had been revolutionaries in the communist cause, had never really had a chance to put these ideals into practice. And finally, being told that the People's Republic of China was under threat, that what seemed like this miraculous achievement of taking over and unifying China and promising a better society for everybody, this feeling that it was very vulnerable from the outside, but perhaps from the inside too. For all those reasons, I think young people would have been incredibly susceptible to those messages. And from the other side, as from Mao's point of view, as, as one of my interviewees said to me, you know, you start with schools and they're really the cornerstone of civilization. Once you've broken things down there, really everything else follows. And I think there's certainly a sense from many of the people who looked lived through it that children were seen as having fewer qualms or perhaps simply less understanding of what their actions meant. But once they'd set it in motion, the adults followed. And children were uh, responsible for the first victim in Beijing, at least, in the Cultural Revolution, weren't they? Teacher, teacher Bian. Yes. Um, tell us a little about her crime, in inverted commas, and her fate. And, and also, what's a big character poster? She was a very stalwart member of the party, like many victims of the Cultural Revolution, in fact. She was the vice principal at a girls' school where many children of the political elite went. And she was very well regarded, although also quite strict. She was unfortunate to be the daughter of a banker, which politically was a black mark against her in terms of class background. But also, as in so many cases, it seems that people with personal grudges also sought to stir things up. 
And her supposed crimes, when you look at them, are laughable. She'd apparently been involved in a coup attempt against the sort of local Beijing political leadership, uh, which clearly wasn't the case. You know, she was a deputy headmistress running a girls' school. She was, among other things, accused of going against Chairman Mao because her pupils had said, well, if there's an emergency, a natural disaster, should we take the picture of Chairman Mao from the school before we leave? And in a sign of the sensitivity of the time, she was careful enough not to say yes or no, but to, just to say, well, it's important to go out quickly when there's an emergency. But even that very cautious message was enough to get her in trouble. That sounds like a trap. That remark, that question sounds like it was an attempt to trap her, doesn't it? It, it does, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. I mean, we can't know. And it was a time when children were educated to be very zealous. So, I mean, I suppose if it was a genuine question, that in itself as well is an indication of the atmosphere of the time, I think. So she made this rather innocuous remark about if there's a fire, it's important just to get out of the building quickly and therefore possibly leave the picture of Mao behind or possibly not. But that was enough, wasn't it, to consign her? Yes, it it was all these little things that were just really enough to condemn her. And so it began with what was known as a big character poster. These were the um, scrawled denunciations of leadership figures that were put up um, and that became a real feature of the Cultural Revolution. So two of her pupils scrawled these posters denouncing her, and it really then began from there, her persecution. She and other teachers were physically abused, they were berated, they were forced to carry heavy loads about, they were hit, and eventually she was beaten to death by her pupils. It seems incredible. Um, And for 30 or more years, more than 30 years, her husband has kept a flame burning for her, didn't he, and wanted somehow for the great injustice visited upon her to be recognised. Tell tell us about your encounters with him and the effect of this long period of grief and anger on him. What's really striking is that some people really knew, even at the time, that this would have to be remembered. It was such a sensitive subject that he really couldn't warn her in public at that point. Certainly not complain, but even mourning was considered sort of dangerous enough. And so he set up a shrine in their household that they could sort of hide, look like a normal bookcase, so that he and their children could remember her. But he also went out the morning after she was killed and bought a little camera to take pictures of her body, of these big character posters that had been put up, even of the smoke from the crematorium chimney. He wanted to record it all. He kept the clothes that she'd been wearing that day. He had this real sense that this had to be remembered. And when it was at last safe to do so, he did bring uh, those things out. He made a documentary working this, with this really remarkable Chinese documentarian, Hu Jie, and he really tried to keep her memory alive in so many ways. What happened, in fact, is that when I arranged to go and see him, he initially said yes, and he then changed his mind uh, somewhere along the way for reasons I'm not still not entirely sure of. And as a journalist, when somebody says no to an interview, you always feel slightly like you've failed or, well, there's just not a story here, and then you go on. But actually, I realised in this case that people not wanting to speak to me was also part of this story. 
because of course that's really the the main story in the of the cultural revolution in china is one of silence and of erasure uh, and of disappearances and so i decided it was important to include him and his unwillingness to speak as time had passed as well as include the people who did want to talk to me and the other aspect of this is that one of Bian Zhongyun's pupils who was just 13 or 14 at the time of her death had also uh, like her widower devoted her life really to recording her death and that of other people who, who fell victim to the cultural revolution and she too had sought to keep this memory alive and remember this woman who'd been treated so cruelly. Would it be fair to say that the people who would speak to you are, as you just intimated, the outliers, that in most instances this is a subject that is shrouded in silence? It's not taboo in the way that the 1989 uh, massacre of the Tiananmen Square protesters is taboo, I think, but but the people that, to whom you spoke are are pretty unusual. Is that is that fair to say? Yes, very much so. It's always been a subject that's been sensitive. It's been policed. But also, as you said at the start, there's so much personal trauma here. So many people have said to me that they know something terrible happened within their families, but nobody will talk to them about it. That's incredibly common. And so there is this sense of it being a sort of space or an absence, although oddly, the way in which it's remembered mostly, I suppose, is with a certain nostalgia hmm. or fondness, as bizarre as it may seem to us. And so, for example, there are cultural revolution restaurants in China that you can go to visit. Now, many of the people I spoke to who lived through the era found that really abhorrent and hated it. But... One of the, my readers actually got in touch to say that he'd been taken to one of these places by someone who'd spent most of that era within a labor camp. So it's very hard for us to understand how it works, but I suppose as in many places, nostalgia is often as much about looking at the society around you and sort of looking at what was in the light of what is and, and seeing it more fondly therefore for many people I think it's the time of their youth and therefore however bitter it was it's sort of bittersweet they want to remember it and, and they want to sort of make sense of it so the people I spoke to in Red Memory are all very unusual in wanting to keep that memory alive but certainly the people who talked most about the pain and the horror of it were also at pains to say to me, you know, there are more people who look back fondly, either for political reasons, like the very unrepentant Maoist Red Guard I spoke to, who basically thinks that it should have succeeded, um, or as I said, for more sort of personal nostalgic reasons. It's not a really a fair question, but I'm going to ask anyway. Do you believe that, though? I mean, not that people are necessarily lying, but it sounds like a period of such ubiquitous fear and such chaos and such, you know, to dispense with public justice and replace it with what looks a lot like private vengeance. It's very hard to believe that lots of people can feel, really feel fondness for that period. Well, I went to one of these cultural revolution restaurants and spoke to a man who there who was old enough to have lived through the era. And he was just saying how relaxing he found it to sort of come along after work and wave his flag to all these red songs from the era while, while these... Uh, waiters, waitresses were sort of dressed up as red guards and so forth. And oh, uh, and I said, 
you know, so you find it relaxing now. So what was the cultural revolution like? And he immediately said, oh, not good to talk about it. So I think perhaps that captures the ambiguity of it and the knowledge that people have that it wasn't straightforward. Obviously, I mean, the people who do think of it fondly are in general the people who did not personally suffer. Um, And clearly some people didn't, you know, they were sort of on the sidelines, they were bystanders really. And then I think as well, you know, there are people who can see that there were elements of the cultural revolution, very short-lived, very marginal, but they did have some genuine value for people. So, for example, that sense of a time where there was really political discussion for the first time. Now, not completely free-ranging, clearly. Um, Very tightly controlled in some regards. You certainly couldn't say anything against Mao. But in other ways, you were allowed to challenge your teachers or your leaders for the first time. And that was quite exhilarating for some people. Uh, Many people have argued that you really would never have had the protests in 1989 if you hadn't had that gradual process of people learning that you could sometimes speak out against the leadership. Uh, Similarly, sort of greater respect for workers and so forth. And even in cultural terms, one of the people I interview is a composer who almost died in the Cultural Revolution. And yet he says that even while he thinks most of the art of the time was terrible, uh, because it was very, very limited cultural repertoire and very formulaic. But he says, well, you know, these things were going to villages and places for the first time where nobody had ever bothered to take place or music. So culture was spreading and people felt that they were worthy of being given culture in some sense. Obviously, clearly, none of that justifies the era or makes it worthwhile. But it does mean that there are elements in there that people relate to or aspire to. And it's not stupid of them to feel that way. It's not It's not complete falsehood. It's not invented, if I can put it that way. Um, absolutely. Um, so eventually Mao tires of the chaos that he set in train and uses in the second phase of the Cultural Revolution, the army to rein in the Red Guards. And I think you say about 17 or so million students are sent to remote rural outposts, often to do hard labor. One of those people is Xi Jinping, of course. Um, there are, as with every aspect of your book, so many questions, but as it, it, just because we're running out of time a little, is it, tell us a bit about the effects of the Cultural Revolution on Xi himself, you think, and how he has subsequently incorporated it into his leadership. Xi Jinping had a pretty terrible start to the Cultural Revolution. His father was a very senior figure within the party, but in fact had already fallen from favour. And so things got much worse when the Cultural Revolution started. The whole family was under immense pressure. Uh, She's half-sister would end up killing herself uh, because of the hounding that the family went through. And she himself was denounced. In fact, we're told that even his mother at one stage was ordered to denounce him at a rally in Beijing. And so he says himself, or has said in the past, that when he was sent to the countryside, actually, everyone else was crying. And he was laughing because he thought, well, you know, what what could be worse, really, than what I've been through? But of course, they thought they were going to the countryside for life. They were told they were going to settle down there. He couldn't even understand, really, the locals when he got there because they spoke so differently. It was an incredibly 
grueling, brutal life. I mean, city kids trying to claw a living out of not particularly abundant land. It, it was very lonely, painful, turbulent for all of them, I think. And yet what's fascinating is that she has kind of turned this into his creation myth. And in fact, it's the one part of the Cultural Revolution that's really celebrated by the party today, detached from its roots completely. They don't talk about uh, why he had to go down to the countryside and suffer in this way. But it's turned into this story of how he grew into manhood, of how he's a man of the people. He knows what it is to struggle to be at the bottom of society. And he's tough. You know, he went through all this and he worked and he worked on behalf of the villagers. And of course, in a sense, all of this is true. He did go through this very turbulent time and he must have been tough and he does know what it's like to be poor and at the bottom of the heap in a way that most Western political leaders, for example, don't. But it's also an incredibly potent story and it's one that the party has increasingly used. And this this whole decade of, of, of chaos um, was a, is it fair to say, was a deliberate attempt by Mao to smash the constraints of civilization and norms and to upend a society that people understood and knew. I mean, you say at one point in the book that the Cultural Revolution was the decade that cleaved modern China in two. And you've talked very brilliantly about the during and the before, but I'm coming back to the after, which is a large focus of your book as well. Before long, Deng Xiaoping was embarking upon the marketization of China, releasing the forces of capitalism back into the society. And they were bringing in the one-child policy, possibly the most devastating attack on women's bodies, certainly in an organised form in the history of the world. I mean, how? what's the relationship between between the turbulence of the Cultural Revolution and then what the, the sort of massive seismic events that followed it? I think it made it very clear that China could not go on on the path that Mao had set it upon. And it really justified and made possible that turn towards the market. So when the party comes out with its verdict on the Cultural Revolution that calls it a catastrophe, it's partly catharsis, a, a chance for people to express the, the pain they've been through. It is, of course, a way of justifying the fact that all the people who were disgraced in the Cultural Revolution, like Deng, are suddenly back in charge. But also, it's a way of saying, well, we've got to do something totally different. So we're turning towards the market here. I think in terms of the public, it was a very complicated thing. On the one hand, it was clearly an immense relief. And the turn towards the market brought this extraordinary rise in prosperity and security that people had never known before in some ways. And yet, at the other, in the other regards, it was another trauma. I mean, partly because... People had struggled through the Cultural Revolution, but some of them had at least convinced themselves that there was a purpose to it. Even sometimes people who had suffered had thought, well, I'm just not a good enough communist, but you know, we're doing this because we're going to come out of this in a better place. And to be told that, in fact, it was all completely pointless and it was all just a terrible mistake was in itself almost another trauma. And then to go to this era of the market, which was also profoundly disruptive, which also tore about part of families because you saw migrant workers suddenly disappearing off to the other side of the country for years, uh, which saw great insecurity in other ways as people were let go from state-owned enterprises and sort of suddenly had to scrabble to survive in, in this new world. 
for all of those reasons, it was a time of great opportunity and excitement, um, but also a very difficult and sometimes distressing time. And even in the realms of culture, for example, you see this great embrace of the outside world and this great drive towards the new and the great hunger. And I think, again, a bit like the turn towards capitalism, a lot of it has its roots in that sense of people really being hungry and desperate for something more and something better after this very dark decade. You say um, at the end of the book that this book couldn't have been written if you were to begin it today. And there's a sense that you're there in those years between 2008 and 2015 in a time of relative political openness. What has happened... I mean, I'm sorry, can you tell us the story about trying to visit the Museum of the Cultural Revolution, which seems to be to be a beautiful, emblematic story, and, and what has changed in the years since... Uh, why it is you couldn't write this book now? So just after the Cultural Revolution, a very famous scholar made a call uh, for a Museum of the Cultural Revolution to be established, essentially so that it could never happen again. And one man, a former official, in fact, tried to do this. He had been put on a death list himself in the Cultural Revolution. He still isn't quite sure how he survived, but somehow he did. He managed, through his connections, uh, as so often the most interesting and challenging initiatives in China are often done within the system, he had grown to quite a powerful position following the Cultural Revolution. And so he managed to win approval to set up this little museum, uh, but only in this very quiet spot, sort of miles away from anyone. And in fact, when it opened, it was initially quite popular. But then as visitors started turning up and Chinese media started covering it, the party really had second thoughts and basically ordered people to stop talking about it. And when you go there, uh, there, you know, there were no signposts. It wasn't on the map, uh, the map of the park that it's located in. And so I went up to try and visit this place. But in fact, by the time I had reached it, it had been rather hastily closed with a sign outside saying they were doing maintenance or something. And I was followed down the hill by what were very obviously uh, the plainclothes policemen. And it really, I think, was quite indicative of the fact that these things are somehow allowed to survive, that some people in China have managed to do these remarkable works of memorialization or of scholarship, but that they are always very fragile, that they depend on not having too much prominence. And so, in fact, uh, when the 50th anniversary of the outbreak of the Cultural Revolution came around, the museum, in fact, seemed to be closed permanently. And over all these images of the Cultural Revolution and sort of inscribed writings about the horrors of it, suddenly with these gigantic propaganda posters talking about Xi Jinping's China dream in a way that just somehow seemed so emblematic, I suppose, of the country's trajectory. And just finally, I'm interested in the um, in how the party state recovered its legitimacy after the catastrophe of the famine and the Cultural Revolution. It was it, You would imagine that two of the great promises of, of communism had been broken, uh, and yet the party endured and went on. How, how did it, what were the sources of legitimacy after the Cultural Revolution? The party is an extraordinary survivor. 
And that's partly because it's been very flexible when it's needed to be, even though in other regards and its political control, certainly it's so rigid. And so the Cultural Revolution really demolished that idea that the party was serving the people as it had promised to. And so it turned very much to economic well-being, material prosperity. And that was a huge boon for hundreds of millions of people across China. And it was immensely powerful. But it also turned to this narrative of patriotic recovery, of the idea that the party had saved China from humiliation at the hands of foreign powers and had brought it back to national greatness. And that was very potent, and it's become more potent over the years, particularly as people have got wealthier, the the promise of getting wealthier doesn't seem as exciting, growth is much slower and more sluggish than it was. It just doesn't have as much power as it did. And so increasingly, the historical narrative has become more and more powerful. And it's really striking that the first public act of Xi Jinping, after he takes power in 2012, is to take his colleagues down to an exhibition at the National Museum of China, which is precisely about the party helping China to recover from foreign humiliation. In the phrase that's sort of famous in China, never forget national humiliation. And that narrative has been extremely powerful. And so we've seen China become more nationalist as well over the years. And we've seen this patriotic education increasingly hammer that idea home. That's all we have time for. Thank you uh, so much, Tanya, for telling us about your profound book and uh, very best of luck in the next stage of the Bailey Gifford Prize. We'd like, as always, to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its continued and very generous support of this podcast. Join us again on the Read Smart podcast, where we will be speaking next time to another of the five shortlisted authors in the run-up to this year's winner announcement. The winner of the 2023 Bailey Gifford Prize will be announced at an awards ceremony at the Science Museum, also supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation, on Thursday the 16th of November. That announcement will also be live-streamed across the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction social channels. If you're interested in finding out more about the shortlist or any other aspect of the prize, you can visit our website or follow us on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram and TikTok at BG Prize. You can also sign up for our newsletter. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.